throughout the course of our lives, we come in contact with people whom inspire us. Sometimes they're great leaders, religious, maybe political, um, some form of a wise being. Many times we don't live in close proximity to these beings. But sometimes we have the great blessing to have someone whom is close to us, near to us, whom is a pillar of inspiration. Tonight's talk is inspired by one such person in my life. It's a person I've had the good fortune to be near to. This person gave me cause to reflect on spiritual friendship, the value of spiritual friendship, how someone can be a friend to us in a way that gives us guidance, gives us strength, calls upon us to give our best to life. They do so by embodying certain qualities. The Buddha gave a lot of value to friendship. There's a very famous um, sutta where Ananda, who was the attendant to the Buddha, was also a cousin of the Buddha. Ananda must have been reflecting on friendship and the power of friendship. And he said to the Buddha, This is half of the holy life, Lord, being a friend with admirable admirable people, a companion with admirable people, a colleague with admirable people. And the Buddha replied, Don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. Being a friend with admirable people, a companion with admirable people, a colleague with admirable people, is actually the whole of the holy life. In Buddhist teaching, kalyanamita is a term that is often used around these spiritual friendships. It's where we have wise friends, friends who help us, encourage us when we're downhearted, friends that give us difficult feedback when it's called for. They challenge us when we become complacent. They inspire us when we are caught in doubt. I think the Buddha may have given so much importance to friendship because we are so impressionable. That when we are with people who are careless, heedless, it's easy for us to lapse into habits of the same, to become reckless ourselves, to not take care, to not bring forth our best. And yet, when we are with wise people, the opposite happens. 
many times simply stepping into the presence of a wise one. We find we can hear ourselves say things we didn't even know that we knew. We find that we become more careful. We take care in what we do and say. Just the the strength of the mirror they provide helps us to see what is true and to honor what is true. The Buddha also said that he sees no other thing that is so much responsible for the arising of unwholesome qualities in a person as bad friendship and nothing so helpful for the arising of wholesome qualities as good friendship. And he says he sees no other external factor that leads to so much harm as bad friendship and no other external factor that leads to so much benefit as good friendship. It's important in our lives to have wise friends, to share the journey with people who can help us. Many times, this Kalyanamita spiritual friendship, as relates to in Buddhist teachings, is from one who is awakened. This is the wisest of friends. But it also moves into the level of peers, the people whom we share this journey with. There's quite a wonderful story of friendship that happened between two monks, Sariputta and Moggallana. These were the two chief disciples of the Buddha. They were friends before they met the Buddha. As young men, they had made a pact between themselves that whoever attained to the deathless state first would tell the other, share with the other. And then it happened that Sariputta, whom before he met the Buddha was actually called Upatisa, he met a monk, a disciple of the Buddha, named Asaji. This is one of the Buddha's first disciples. And in meeting him, Upatisa noticed how serene he was, how he was very pure and bright in his complexion. And so he questioned this monk. And as he questioned this monk, he realized the first stage of enlightenment. He went back to find his friend, Kolita, who was later to become Magalana. When Kolita first saw his friend, he could tell by the radiance of his friend that he had tasted of the deathless. It said that they both then became disciples of the Buddha and within a very short period of time became fully enlightened. It's important that we have this level of friendship where we make these pacts with people, where we have this bond to support each other in awakening. This is the basis of the Sangha, the gathering together 
of the awakened ones in the highest form and the gathering together of those committed to the teachings of awakening, like-minded people coming together. Our peers are those who will support us on this journey. They become our close friends, intimate with us, are able to point out to us when we start to veer off the path. And they do so in a gentle and kind way and in moments that are appropriate. With our friends, we find we can share our mistakes. And this is a way of letting go, moving on. Our friends can be happy for us when we have good fortune. They rejoice when we do meritorious acts. They help to reinforce the good within us. And they help to draw this out. So spiritual friendship, the Buddha giving a lot of value to this. He has his own descriptions of what the qualities of a spiritual friend are. But tonight, I wanted to speak about the qualities that I saw or see in my spiritual friend, the friend who inspired this talk. When I looked at my friend, I saw qualities of graciousness, generosity, gentleness, humbleness, an uprightness, honesty, composure, loving, compassionate, and wise. Actually, I think my friend has many more wonderful qualities. These were just the first ten that came to mind. And I think maybe I've been in the Buddhist teachings a long time to start coming up with a list. (laughs) When I looked at this list, too, I realized how close this list is to actually what the Buddha calls the ten paramis, the requisites for enlightenment. And this also gave me a moment to reflect on how when one really lives wisely, embodying wisdom, the fruits of that come forth in very typical ways. And these qualities that I'll speak of tonight are qualities that we can bring forth in our own lives as we embody wisdom. So the first, graciousness. I haven't found it on a Buddhist list, so I went to a dictionary. And the dictionary said, one who is kind and courteous, characterized by charm and good taste. Now, when I reflected on that in relationship to my friend, I thought that was the most feeble, superficial description of graciousness. 
And so I reflected on it by way of spiritual friend. What I saw in that graciousness is the quality of equanimity, a being who is poised in the onslaught of life, who is unflappable in moments where life comes tumbling down on one. They move neither to the left nor the right, but meet life full on with graciousness, poise, balance, spaciousness. I'd like to share a few lines from a U2 song. Uh, It's called Grace. Grace, she carries a world on her hips, no champagne flute for her lips, nor twirls or skips between her fingertips. She carries a pearl in perfect condition. What once was hurt, what once was friction, what left a mark no longer stings, because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Grace finds beauty in everything. This is something I've noticed in my friend, that they have this capacity to look at a pile of rubbish and see it as compost, to see the beauty in everything, to find the pearl of wisdom in everything. When one steps into the presence of one of graciousness, one feels blessed by this graciousness. It reflects back to us the beauty that is inherent in each of us. Because nothing stands outside of grace. I wasn't sure whether to begin or end this talk with this quality of graciousness, because I think it comes about when one fully manifests all of these qualities, that it's a manifestation of them. It's the fruit that these qualities bear. The second quality, that of generosity, that of being able to live with an openness of heart that is concerned for the welfare of others. I, I don't know if it's like other people, but I first came to this practice to become liberated. And I had no idea how much the practice of generosity would be entwined with that. 
I had the very good fortune of being surrounded by wonderful role models. And I started to come to some understanding of the relevance and importance of this quality of generosity. Seeing how generosity is a way that we get in touch with the quality of loving kindness, of caring for the welfare of others. It's a way that we get in touch with the quality of compassion, the movement of heart to alleviate suffering, where we are active in our caring for the welfare of others. Generosity is a way that we come in contact with the understanding of our interconnectedness. And generosity is based on non-grasping, non-clinging, relinquishing, letting go. Sometimes in our practice, letting go may feel very elusive when we're looking at being letting go of very subtle states of mind. And yet, letting go in our own experience can be quite tangible when we're relinquishing that in the material world. And we can really come to feel the benefit of that when we pay attention in a moment of generosity to what it feels like to let go. I often feel that generosity is really the glass platter in which we receive these teachings. It's an aspect of the teachings that we could often overlook. And yet these teachings come to us because of this quality of generosity. Going back to the time of the Buddha, His offering of these teachings was a form of generosity. All of the uh, monks, nuns, all of the lay teachers whom have dedicated their lives to awakening and have then turned around and offered these teachings, it's their generosity. And that was only made possible through people supporting them helping care for them, offering to them. And so these teachings coming to us today date back to the generosity of people right back in the time of the Buddha. Three years ago, when the forest refuge first opened, I had the good fortune to sit here for a few months I had been a part of this center before it was in its physical form. I had watched it through many different stages, came to know of all of the generosity that helped it to be here through people's time, effort, energy, through people contributing on the material level. And as I sat here, I found my heart burst open in remembering this. I spent hours out in those woods, crying tears of gratitude, appreciation for what had been offered, for 
what that was bringing into the world. I reflected on how once the Buddha had said, to give where one has confidence. And I saw what was around me as a statement to what some people had confidence in. Some people having confidence so strong in the Dhamma, in these teachings, that they had the means, they had the capacity to offer. And out of that, how many people would benefit. As I was sitting, though, I also noticed this is a small retreat center. Not many yogis can practice here at any one time. And yet, there is a staff required to care that continually is offering to sustain our practice. I realized, too, that in order to take time out of one's life to come and be on retreat, it takes a lot of uh, financial ability to do that. And in doing so, it makes it a challenge in our lives. And so I was sitting there thinking, how will this center be able to continue? Will it only be for the rich? How can it be that all people from all walks of life can come here? And this is a part of the vision of this center. I realized it could only come to be through continued generosity, through the same movement of heart that had brought this facility into being, was the only way that it could sustain this vision. I realized in doing so, it would, in our community, take a maturing of this sense of generosity. Really being able to give from a place that is not self-referencing, not self-cherishing, but really having the capacity to give for the welfare and benefit of all beings. I reflected on how in my own life there had been a time when in being around monastics and seeing that there was a way one could support the monastics to continue to live in a way of you know, doing a lot of practice, carrying forth the teachings, where I, you know, I've been kind of self-referencing in that and thinking, why should I give to them? You know, I want to, I want to benefit. You know, wanting to give for myself. But I can see this is a very limited way of looking. Seeing that for this vision to really continue, we need to give with confidence that whether we are giving by sitting here practicing, whether we are giving by supporting someone in our community to come here and practice, whether we are giving by offering you know, just what we can to, to IMS as a whole, 
that this is a way of benefiting all beings. I was reminded by the the truth of this when um, I reflected on someone whom had been, you know, out living in the world, practicing, you know, trying to go to as many retreats as she could. And she was working in a small office. And, you know, she would ask her boss, could she go to a retreat? Her boss was very kind, said, yes, go off, do the practice. Coming back, you know, working again, and then being inspired to go on another retreat. Asking again, can I go? Yes, it's fine. And then one day, needing to really check in with her boss whether this was okay. And her boss saying, yes, this is fine. We all benefit when you do retreats. So really having to have a vision of the whole, rather than being concerned about my personal awakening, to see what part it is we can play, how generous, where we can give, freely offer. And it can be that we can offer our practice. We can offer the work that we do here to be of benefit for all beings, practicing diligently, giving the gift of presence. The Buddha once said, there is no greater gift than the gift of Dhamma. this quality of generosity. This is a quality that helps to keep alive these teachings. The next quality being that of honesty. Our practice is about being honest. What is true in this moment? Sometimes needing to be brutally honest, challenging ourselves. It's through our practice we learn to practice non-deception. Many times we will see, we try to dodge the truth. It's hard to, at times, be truthful, honest. But then we begin to see how tiring that is and what a great relief it is when we can have a moment of truthfulness, a moment of honesty. Being honest in our practice helps to train us to be honest in our lives, to speak with honesty. In doing so, it helps others to be able to trust us and be at ease with us. When we're not honest, people become guarded, distant, It creates separation, confusion, 
When we're not honest, people become confused in a way that they don't trust their own perceptions. We bring a great gift to the world when we can be honest. I'd like to share a poem by Hafiz. Few have the, have the strength to be a hero, that rare man or woman who always keeps their word. Even an angel needs rest. Integrity creates a body so vast, a thousand-winded one will plead, may I lay my cheek against you. We find those who are honest becomes a pillar in which we can lean against. Making it a practice in our lives to be honest, to speak that which is true, helpful, useful. It can be very powerful to take a vow to be honest. It helps bring awareness to this quality of truthfulness. Paying attention as we speak, noticing where we may embellish the truth, where we may suddenly find ourselves speaking a lie, something untruthful, looking to see what our motivation is here. I'd like to share a teaching on uh, speaking that which is true from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a Western monk who has devoted so much of his life to translations of the suttas and commentaries on the suttas. He says, to realize truth, our whole being has to be brought into accord with actuality, with things as they are, which requires that in communications with others, we respect things as they are, by speaking the truth. Truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our own inner being and the real nature of phenomena, allowing wisdom to rise up and fathom their real nature. Thus, much more than an ethical principle, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion, on the truth grasped by wisdom rather than the fantasies woven by desires. So truthful speech as a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion. The next quality being that of humility. I think this is a quality that our culture doesn't often encourage. 
At least I discovered that that was my interpretation of humility. This um, discovery was made when I was in Burma. And I had decided to ordain as a nun, uh, to temporarily live the life of a nun. At my ordination, there was photos that were taken. Later on, I was to see these photos. When I looked at one photo, I saw the look of humility. My response was so interesting. It was this inner cringe of embarrassment. You know, as if I had the sense that as a, as a nun, as a human being, I should be sitting there, upright, prideful, you know, and just seeing this look of humility. It took me a couple of months before I could look at this photo without cringing. And yet, humility is an important quality. Without humility, will be full of ourselves, prideful, conceited. There can be no real realization because there's always the self that things are referring back to. I'd like to share a short teaching from a Tibetan teacher, um, Zigar Kantro Rinpoche. He's a Tibetan teacher who's uh, still alive right now, quite young actually. And this is from his book, It's Up to You. Humility is essential to this process. We are all ordinary human beings working with ordinary problems. It helps to always see yourself as a beginner, as a child crawling about or suckling to its mother's milk, or just being born from the womb. You are incredibly vulnerable but you have tremendous potential to go beyond all ignorance and suffering. With humility, you will never become full of yourself. You will always have the openness to look, and through looking, to renounce self-importance and ensure your well-being. Through humility, the renouncing of self-importance it's rare to be modeled in the world of so many aspiring selves. And so when we meet someone who models this, it's truly touching. And oftentimes within a crowd, one really has to have one's eyes open because they're not the one you know, puffing up, making themselves obvious. The humble people in our lives, we often don't notice. And left, unless we have that soft gaze that sees their radiance, their beauty. When I was recently practicing in Burma, I was at the a retreat center that had been begun by a Burmese master, Shweyamin Sayada. Around the monastery were many photos of Chweyomen Sayada, who was reported to have been an arahant, a fully enlightened being. When I looked at these photos, I saw a man of complete humility. There was a gentleness, a grace, 
No sense of looking at someone who thought they were important. This humbleness. Through our practice, we come in contact with humility. When we are faced with suffering, when we are faced with pain, how many times are we brought to our knees in the face of suffering? It's here we learn humility. But that humility comes about not when we collapse with the pain, but when we know of its depths, when there's wisdom, understanding, and a deep caring of heart. There becomes no place for the self to grow. The next quality is that of uprightness. This is one who has a virtuous heart, one who has lived well and in harmony with life. And their essential goodness shines forth. Living a virtuous life can be supported by the understanding of the guardians of the world, Hiri and Otapa. This is moral shame and moral dread. We find that when we live with Hiri, that of moral shame, our actions are guided by doing nothing that one would later be ashamed of. In this way, we are able to honor our noble lineage, our inheritance. It comes out of self-respect. So it helps us to live with a heedfulness, taking care, Otapa, on the other hand, is where we do nothing that one would later be blamed for. And we do so out of respect for others, out of caring for others. When we have self-respect and respect for others. It helps to guide what we do and what we say to be based in wholesome intentions, to come from a place of kindness and care. When 
we live an upright, upright life. We live honoring the precepts which guide us to living a life of non-harming, being conscious about our motivations. We do so by having a strength of resolve, a commitment to living a life of non-harming. And knowing that when we falter, when we fail, when we do something that causes harm, we can simply reflect, know the harm that has been caused, feel the pain, and we can forgive and move on, recommit to a life of non-harming. Our capacity to do so will become strengthened when we reinforce through positive actions the nobility of the heart, when we feel the joy of doing that which is helpful skillful. Living a virtuous life, an upright life, is really an expression of the radiant heart. The next quality is that of composure. And this is tied together with uprightness. It's said that the characteristic of virtue is composing, coordinating, and establishing. We compose our minds upon pure and sincere motivations in our lives. we find that virtuous actions are a result of the composed mind. The composed mind helps us to be fully present. It helps us to gather and collect our energy so that we can attend to what is important and not needlessly be pulled into distraction. When one is of composed nature, it helps to bring a balance to challenging situations. It helps others to be at ease in these difficulties. And through composure, one does not lose sight of what is virtuous, helpful. The next quality is that of gentleness. Sometimes we confuse gentleness with being weak, but true gentleness comes from a heart 
filled with loving kindness. It has nothing to do with saying nice things, but speaking in a way where even the most difficult things can be received. When we are gentle with ourselves in practice, there's no tone of harshness. There's a tenderness, a caring. When we're gentle with ourselves in practice, we can get a sense of the loving kindness that is there. Have a sense of touching into our pain with kindness. It was when I hit this quality of gentleness and having reflected on some of the other qualities I'm speaking of, it suddenly reminded me of what the Buddha in the Metta Sutta when he said, this is what should be, one, be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I started to see how all of these qualities that I'm speaking of are so tied together. And come forth through loving kindness and wisdom. So this quality of gentleness, when it's present in a spiritual friend, it helps to calm us when we're irritated. It is a source of strength when we learn how to embody that gentleness within ourselves. It's an aspect we can bring to our speech. Takes us into the next quality of loving kindness. Loving kindness is what I see as a cohesiveness of a spiritual community, spiritual friendship, where we can live and relate in a way that is based on this caring for each other being able to accept each other, both for the good qualities that we bring forth and for the places where we still have things to accept, more work to do. 
a person who has this quality of loving kindness is one whom, when we step in front of them, we feel accepted, both for our strengths and weaknesses. There's a sutta where um, the Buddha was talking to Anuruddha, one of his disciples. And the Buddha went to visit this small community that Anuruddha lived in. He lived with two other monks. And the Buddha noticed that there was harmony amongst these monks. And so the Buddha asked Anuruddha if they got on well with each other because he knew that not all monks lived together so harmoniously. And Anuruddha replied, yes, they were living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. They were able to live together in a way that was an expression of loving kindness maintaining towards each other this kindly attitude that manifests in kindly deed, affectionate speech, and loving thoughts. Anuruddha told the Buddha, we are different in body, but one in mind. When we can make loving kindness the basis of our spiritual community, it will give strength, durability, to that community, we will be able to help each other, support each other. It's a mutual caring for each other. The next quality being that of compassion, a spiritual friend who has this quality of compassion can be with us when we are in pain, when we are afraid. And they bear witness. They honor that pain. They honor our process. They bring the power of awareness when we may not have the strength to do so. They let us put our head in their lap. And for a moment, they hold us. Their compassion is guided by wisdom. So they don't fall into collusion with us. But they can wield the fierce sword of wisdom, fierce compassion when it's needed. They can bring this forth when we need to be shaken out of complacency, when we're obstinate in not seeing clearly. It's this quality of compassion that the Buddha had when he set in motion the wheel of Dhamma, when he shared these teachings of liberation It's this quality of compassion that keeps us from turning our backs on those caught in pain and suffering.
the last of these qualities is that of wisdom. One who is wise is at ease in life and the way things are. Sometimes I think that as we grow older, there's a natural wisdom that comes. This is an ordinary wisdom. We get a bit smarter. But so much deeper is this wisdom when it comes from a lifetime of looking into truth, looking into life's experience to see what can be learned, what can be learned from people, events, experiences, what can be learned from the good experiences, the bad experiences. The depth of wisdom becomes unfathomable when one one has lived this life of inquiry. This wisdom helps to support all of these other qualities. It comes when, when one is committed unwaveringly to the truth and to embodying the truth in life. So all of these qualities are qualities that help one from move, to move from selfishness to selflessness. They help us to let go of our self-cherishing tendencies and to interact with the world at large, manifesting compassion, care, kindness. People whom embody these qualities are indeed worthy of being a spiritual friend. They are ones who we can rely upon, inspire us. good fortune when we have such beings in our lives. And they can inspire us to be a spiritual friend ourselves. I see the chain of these teachings as being the chain of spiritual friendship. We're going back to the time of Buddha. One being awakening and helping another being to awaken. The wise ones in our lives, lending that hand, being that pillar of inspiration, being that strength that helps us to call forth these same qualities through doing the practice that we're doing here. It helps us to get in touch with these qualities within ourselves so that we, too, can be a spiritual friend. In this way, the chain of wisdom is never broken.
like to express my great gratitude for having such a friend in my life. My desire to be worthy of that friendship, that I can take what I've learned from them and pass it on to others. And I hope that all beings in their lives can touch into the strengths, the possibilities that we can come to know through such beings. I came across a poem from Kabir that I'd like to share. When I read this poem, it's called The Sound, I had this image of all of these qualities coming together and making this sound. It's all of these qualities entwined. A sound that is so subtle and yet so distinct. It's the sound of truth and of a life well lived. So this is the poem. The sound. The flute of interior time is played, whether we hear it or not. What we mean by love is its sound coming in. When love hits the farthest edge of excess, it reaches a wisdom. And the fragrance of that knowledge It penetrates our thick bodies. It goes through walls. Its network of notes has a structure as if a million suns were arranged inside. This tune has truth in it. Where else have you heard a sound like this? So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.